Aloha paddlers and thank you for listening to another episode of 90% Mental Ultra Distance Paddling Adventures. On this episode, I got to talk story with a very experienced paddler by the name of Sally O'Donnell. For those of you who know her and have raced with her, you already know she's an amazing ultra endurance athlete. She just turned 60 and recently competed in the first annual Great Alabama 650 in 2019. Not only did she win the women's solo division, she was one of only three teams to actually complete the challenge. Now, if that doesn't inspire you, I don't know what does. She's done multiple other ultra distance races to include Yukon 1000, MR340, and the North Carolina Challenge. And she holds a few pretty impressive records. Being new to the ultra distance scene myself, it is really helpful to hear what veterans of the sport have to share, so I really enjoyed listening to what goes on inside of her mind. You have to approach these distances not only with mental and physical abilities, but also with tactical and technical knowledge. I hope this gives you all a window into what this sport is all about, because it's something that only gets better with age. With age comes knowledge, and with knowledge comes a better understanding of how to tackle this sport physically, mentally, and technically. I hope you all enjoy. tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you how you got into ultra distance racing oh i know yeah. you just turned uh 60 which is you don't look you don't look 60. <laughs> oh, that's what all the miles uh helped here <laughs> absolutely but, uh, um well i started ultra distance racing actually as an ultra distance runner and um, I started that back in 1990 or something like that. Um, and it was after I had a couple of knee replacements, I actually had to switch to a different sport. So in 2012 is when we found the distance paddling and gave that a shot. So that was kind of our, our first blush or my first blush into uh, distance paddling. Okay, uh, and so that uh, that 2012 race was the was that the 90 miler Water Tribe yes. North yes, Carolina the, Challenge. Correct, North Carolina Challenge, and so when we were in the the spring or winter of 2012, when we decided that um, uh, we're kind of turning into couch potatoes, um, that's when Mike started looking for different types of activities and. Uh, he found, he was, I don't know, I guess just checking out things online, and he found something about the Water Tribe and saw that they did these distance type of paddling. And at that time, I guess it was their, um, the 2012 Everglades Challenge was going on. So uh, it piqued our interest, and we started looking into it. And so then we decided we'd go out and try to find a sea kayak to play in. And... Uh, uh, ordered a couple of good old Eddie lines, which I still have my original um, from that period, um, and then just started training on our own and decided to try that North Carolina challenge in September. And uh, 
great folks. So we really just, I think that was the biggest thing is just meeting up with a, a neat group of folks that really enjoyed being out on the water. And I guess, um, I think I'd like to say that that's kind of when, you know, I realized, oh my gosh, this is it. I want to do this forever. But to be honest, I, uh, I, I, I was finishing up that race into a headwind and I was cursing and I was saying I would never, ever, ever do this again, that I would just be Mike's ground crew from this point on. <laughs> I think we've all been, we've all been to that point. Never again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and thank goodness, uh, you know, my memory is uh, pretty short because it didn't take long before we started planning our next uh, race that we wanted to do. And, and we really enjoyed, um, you know, the Water Tribe is what got us into these distance paddling type of things and um, kind of forced us to um, um, just, I guess, go through a very steep learning curve. Um, so... Um, got to hand a lot to them, the tribe, for helping us get there. And then um, we eventually started branching out into other types of races. Awesome. So the North Carolina Challenge, now you did that solo in 2012. Is it a solo Correct. race or you have to do it, it solo? <laughs> it, it, it's all types of, um, and you can go solo, you can go, um, you know, tandem. And it, it's a race that has... Um, so many different types, you know, both divisions, I guess you call them, um, whether it's sea kayaks, um, with sails or without sails, um, but they also have sailboats. It's basically any small craft that is human or wind-powered, uh, as long as you can get it off the launch beach into the water, you know, with just you and, you know, if you have a teammate, Mm -hmm. then it was acceptable um, for the race. So it was, it's kind of fun being, you know, starting off the race with all the different types of boats. So, so I, did a, I did a little bit of research, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I read that in 2013 you actually set the record for the only women to finish in less than 24 hours. Is that, is that true? I'm trying to think if that was 2013 or 2014. Um, it was one of those years, and it was kind of an odd year um, because um, it was real, real rough weather, and so we were given the option um, we could actually start, you know, as long as you did the race within a week, um, you know, you could start even on your own. So a lot of because a lot of people, if I just recall correctly. You know, nobody actually raced that particular day. So we came back, um, and so they monitored and everything. So in, in reality, it was probably one week and 23 hours or whatever, you know, because <laughs> we didn't actually start on what that real day was. But, yeah, it was less than 24 hours that we actually made the whole course. And it was kind of nice because um, probably one of the most beautiful days we came back, the weather was fantastic um it would have been wonderful if we had the rest of the group racing with us at that time but they had us tracking on the their tracker maps and um you know it was kind of uh, i guess nice for other folks to kind of watch us as we did that 
Super cool. Yeah, that's definitely a race that's uh, on my bucket list. So I hope ho- hope to get to do that race one day. Um, you had mentioned that you first got into ultra distance racing as a mountain trail runner. Now, recently I was just reading an article uh, by Sarah, Sarah Lavender Smith on the Trail Runner magazine online, and it talks about what it takes to be an ultra runner. I find a lot of parallels with um, just any ultra distance race, whether it be running, biking, swimming. Um, she lists the, the top non-physical attributes for ultra being mental toughness, patience, respect and humility, strategic planning and experience. And she introduces one of the greatest ultra distance runners of all times, actually. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Ann Trayson, who at age 24 entered the American River 50 mile. And with very little knowledge and planning, she set a longstanding course record. So to me, it was kind of interesting because, you know, being 24 and talks about how she really had little to no experience and she just kind of went for it. Um, how do you relate to this? Yeah, that's a good question. It's very multifaceted, really. Um, uh, I do agree. Uh, when I first started, I, like I said, it was in 1990, so um, I was relatively old at that point. Uh, and I felt like it was um, a type of race that was for older people in the fact that we tended to be a little bit more, I thought, um, I guess methodic with the stick to things or whatever. And I've, I've been watching over the years, that's really not the case. Um, you start seeing a lot more younger people that are able to do these. Um, without the experience that one would think would require. Uh, but I do think, you know, endurance is a thing that is not about one particular activity. Um, I thought that I was a runner and, you know, that's what I needed. And it, I was kind of baffled when I had to stop running because um, I thought, you know, now what do I do? So when I started doing the paddling, I found out it wasn't running that I needed in my life. It was just an endurance activity. Mm-hmm. So you, and endurance activities can be as simple as, can you sit in a car and drive across country? <laughs> you know, with very little stopping. You know, there's a lot of different ways that we experience endurance and we develop endurance. That's not just the obvious doing a foot race or a paddle race or a swim race or anything like that. So I've, I've reflected a lot about these younger folks um, that have been able to to accomplish, such as this young lady, such a great feat. And, and it makes me want to learn more about what was going on in their lives that, that enabled them to have uh, the experience they needed um, to be successful in such a different type of way. Um, and I know that's probably a very vague way of not saying much. Uh. <laughs> no, to me, I think it's it's interesting because I, I first got into ultra distance, you know, in 2018. I mean, I just, I basically, you know, Will Rich, I sat down, had a conversation with him. I mean, we were just drinking coffee and he had all this stuff all over the place. And I said, what are you doing? He's like, I'm getting ready to do this Yukon 1000. And 
So I entered the MR340. I did the race with no experience whatsoever. I, I mean, I've raced, you know, 20, 30, 40 miles. But I started to notice as I got around the ultra distance community that it was really the 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 older women that were killing it and it just it really intrigued me because I'm thinking being as naive as I was going into ultra distance you know you would have thought like oh it's going to be the the super young 20 year olds you know that are super fit and all this stuff and you and you look at it and you realize it's not that is not the case and I think that's when I started to really realize that these races are not it's not all about the physical I mean and that's why you know, my podcast being called 90% mental, I think there is just such a huge mental aspect to these kinds of races. And it's really interesting that, that women seem to peak at that at a, at an older age than, than one would naturally think. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, during my running and now I'm seeing it translate into my, um, my paddling, um, you, you're always, you're going to get slumps, you know, you're going to get where at times where you just wonder why the heck you're doing this and you know, <laughs> either, either your, your bone is hurting or your hands are hurting or something or you're just bored or whatever uh, and your energy is low and by having the experience of, you know, hey, I remember I was this way at, you know, before. And then I remembered that the next day or several hours later or whatever, I was feeling like a young pup. Yeah, and so I think having more and more of that experience under my belt makes each time I get a slump mm, that less of a uh, challenge for me. Um, I, I hardly ever think that, you know, that anything that's happened to me is going to be what's going to take me out. Um, you know, I, I have had, you know, bad, well, running bad sprains. I used to run with a, a, a brace. Um, I used to always hear the thing, I never can remember a face, but I never forget a brace. I've heard that from so many folks as they passed me. <laughs> but, um, Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, do you think that, I know that w what you had told me before, you, you have a military background. Do you think that you, you know, in any way had an advantage going into these ultra distance races because of, you know, some military experience? Because, you know, in the military, they teach you how to tolerate unpleasant experiences and, and be able to just kind of toughen you up a little bit. I mean, do you think that that helped you in your um, future I, racing endeavors? Actually, I think it's more when I was, I was one of five kids, had two older brothers. Um, and I think that's what kind of toughened me up. So <laughs> it was going into the military and going through all of their stuff, I guess I already had that endurance, I already had that mentality. Um, so I had no issues at, with my military time, um, it was actually the, especially when we were, you know, I was mostly divisional, so I'd be out in field units. I mean, running was just an, the easy go-to thing to do when you needed to just kind of get away from every 
buddy and everything and just think a little bit. So, um, you know, because of the military, I probably did more running, but no, I think the toughness model was already built in. It just made the military fun for me, really. <laughs> Interesting. Well, cool. Um, so moving forward, I just kind of want to talk about three kind of key races. I want to talk about the MR340, the Yukon 1000, and your recent accomplishment, the Alabama 650. Uh, just kind of mm -hmm. talk about those races and, you know, how you think they're different and kind of what you did to prepare for those, uh, starting with the MR340 for people that are listening that don't know. 88 hours to complete it, 340 miles, uh, seven mandatory checkpoints uh, in which you can get support from your support crew there, uh, which is a lot different than some of the other races where you, I mean, the Yukon 1000 being completely unsupported, and then you've got the Yukon River Quest where you can have support, you know, halfway through. Um yeah. So with the MR340, so right now, if I'm not mistaken, uh, 2017, you competed in the MR340. You got fourth overall and Correct. first female. That is impressive. <laughs> that is yeah. super impressive. And I think you hold the second fastest time record for female at 44 hours, six minutes. That was correct until last year, 2018, the MR340, they had a real, real great run, um, uh, faster river speeds and everything. So I know that Robin Benacosta, um broke her run record. Robin, prior to that, yeah, she had the record at 43.06. Now, um, if I recall correctly, it, she dropped down to like 39-something on last year's run. Yeah, so, so she's at 30, 3841. So that was the year that I did the MR340. And yes, the river was super fast. And this woman just impressed me. I think she's 42. And she yeah. just, I mean, she's got it down. Yeah, she's a young whippersnapper. <laughs> yeah, so, so this race, um, what go, going into this race had you already had a lot of I mean you already had a lot of experience in ultra distance racing I mean how how was this race for you? Oh well, the MR340 it was it was very different you know the water tribe events you know there were events for challenges of course and whenever you have more than one boat on the water it is a race but it's not the traditional type of races you know we got into the water tribe events were just self kind of you know you race against yourself um so i think that mr340 was the first real big race uh that i did and you know, I, I did some shorter like 100 140 mile races stuff like that but it wasn't you know this was the first really big one um and i really didn't know what to expect you know i tried to do my research as best as possible i've never you know, I, got, I fell in love with doing some of these river races because, you know, having a current really is um, <laughs> quite a fun thing. Um, but I still didn't know, you know, I heard about the, the wing dikes. And, yes, uh, those are scary. Yeah, and of course you hear about the barges and the fog and everything. You're like, how am I going to handle it? So I, I wasn't really sure how to gauge 
my planning for it, um, but I, I just kind of take a swagger about what I thought the speed would be and everything. And um, so in all the races, you know, my big thing is just trying to envision the whole race. And I do that by plotting out the whole distance on Google Earth. So I'm doing this for the MR340. I'm just trying to figure out how to do the speeds. Um, and so I just chose something. And it, it's good enough to get me going. So when we went for the race, it was also the first time I could have support. Uh, and Mike, um, gosh, he's the best ground crew anybody could ever want. So we had it all figured out, you know. I think at this time I'll be in a certain place, and, and we also had another very good friend, Jim Shannon, that came and helped Mike. Um, and the two of them, you know, they just, once we finally figured out what my average speed was, I mean, it was like, I felt like I was in the, you know, Indy 500 race. I would come into a spot, they'd be pulling out water bags, pulling in water bags, food and everything, and I hardly got out of my boat. Um, you know, and totally did not expect any of this, just because we didn't know how I would do it. I was planning on, you know, maybe I'm going to be sleeping here, maybe I'm going to be this. I didn't know what it would take to go 340. Um, so it was all, um, you know, a trial and error, and it worked out. It was, after a while, I guess the second day, Mike, that's when Mike started saying, do you... You are something, you know, you started giving me my placements and everything. I'm like, what? You know, so, because you don't know, you know, you get kind of spread out on that river. And uh, for quite a bit, I was by myself. Um, so I had no idea where I was with respect to other boats. Um, mm -hmm. So um, it was quite an experience, though. Uh, so, you, as you know, you get that nice current. You get to have support, so you don't have to carry so much in your boat. Um, you know, you can, if you want, there's pl plenty of places to stop, stretch, whatever. Um, and uh, I don't know, it, I thought it was probably one of the most well-organized, well-supported races um, that I've enjoyed. I really, I really did like it. Yeah, I thought so, too. I thought that I was actually very impressed and actually uh my boyfriend john who came with me he goes to races you know all over the world and he even commented like this is the most organized race i've ever seen in my life <laughs> yeah and the people yeah. i mean the people are just awesome that was one oh, thing I that... <laughs> i'll tell you i mean they are so uplifting yeah you um you have you know other crews that are there, you know, the places um, that were extremely supportive of us. And um, of course, there's other folks that from what I could tell, like just where they always would set up their little kiosk for selling their different foods and everything, and which Mike and Jim really enjoyed that. I didn't <laughs> enjoy that too much, but um, yeah, Scott Mansker and his group did a do a great job of putting that race on, and I'm looking forward to um, going back there in 2020. I was actually hoping to go there in 2019, but once it started getting pushed off, then it started getting in the way of the Alabama 650, so I had to mm -hmm. jump out of that. 
So I, I heard, personally, I heard going into this, the, the best advice someone gave me was keep your butt in the boat. Now, you said you you didn't get out of your boat as much, probably as much as I did. I got out of my boat a lot. <laughs> but I, I feel like that's kind of the, the, that seems to be kind of the trend. I know, especially for Robin, Ben, and Casa, I mean, she doesn't, she literally doesn't get out of her boat, period. Yeah. Um. So I think that's definitely, you know, something, something important yeah. to look into. I mean, that's hard. That's hard to not get out of your boat. It's hard to not, you know, want to get out and stretch. But every time you get out of your boat in that race, it's just, I mean, at the end, all that accumulated time, it can be a lot. Oh, absolutely. Especially with how fast that water is flowing. So if you are stuck, oops. And I've got to jump in here for that because my theory on life is, is what I preach to her all the time. Every 10 minutes is a mile. Yeah. There you Especially go. Exactly. Mile. And for the 340 out of the dump, she was out of the boat for a total of 52 minutes. That was it. Oh, wow. Gosh, that much? That much? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> and we did not stop. Remember, I did feed you soup. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think, and I think uh, uh, the thing about this race too, um, and you can you can chime in if you agree with me on this or not. But I think that for someone, I always tell people, and again, I'm I'm so new to all this ultra distance stuff. But just from the races I have done and what I've seen, this seems like a very good first race for someone who's looking for something, you know, over the hundred mile. It seems like a good first ultra distance race for someone to start because there is so much support and they do give you, I mean, 88 hours is, it really is a lot of time. I mean, yeah. I heard there was people getting out and sleeping, you know, going to a hotel and sleeping real quick. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't happen a lot, but they give you a lot of time to finish it. So it's really not, it's one of those races. I think it's really good for people who want to dip their toe and and not saying by any means it's easy because it was, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. <laughs> well, and I do agree with you. I mean, I think it's a great um, race to begin if you want to start going distance. And the other thing that's good about it, because it does allow um, crew support um, I think it's a great time. What, what we're finding is that the races that do allow crew support, your ground crew is critical. I mean, absolutely can make or break the paddler. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's a, I think the MR340 is kind of a good proofing ground, teaching ground for your ground crew. Um, you've got so many other people around to, to help. Um, and it's not quite as tight uh, to, for your ground crew to get from one spot to the next, so they can they can learn, train, experience on get experience on their logistics, how they handle you know their land navigation, how they handle their resupply um, for them as well as for me as the paddler, how they organize stuff in the the car so that when they get to the next spot, they can be, you know, do they have a little cart to get the stuff down that I might need, you know. Uh, so just, I think it's a great for both the paddler and the ground crew. And, um, you know, and as I'm talking to you about this, I'm thinking about, you know, how going into the Alabama 650, 
how important that ground crew is and what a wonderful training ground the MR340 is for that uh, crew and the teamwork. Awesome. Okay, so then moving on to the Yukon 1000, which is completely just a whole nother level. Uh, this is uh, Whitehorse Canada to Dalton Highway Bridge in Alaska, just over the Arctic Circle. You have 10 days to complete this race, 18 hours on, six hours off every, every day. Yep. No backups, no safety blankets, absolutely self-sufficient. Um, I will be competing in this race with my partner, April Zill, next year, which I'm really excited about. Um, I did the Yukon River Quest this year uh, solo, which was 444 miles of this Yukon 1000. Yes. So I kind of got to kind of get a little bit of an idea of what I'm getting myself into. <laughs> um, so you competed this in this race, uh, which by the way, this race, you, for the people listening, you have to do it with a partner. You cannot do it solo. Uh, you competed in 2018, taking fifth overall. It took you seven days, nine hours and 45 minutes with your partner to complete. Uh, who was your partner? It was Paul Cox. And I, I had met up with Paul Cox. I think it was in 2015. Um, at the James River Rundown in Virginia. It was a 100-mile race. That's the first time I believe I had met Paul. And then we had, um, then I saw him again. He lived in Atlanta at that time. Well, he still does. And I was up in Virginia at that time. Um, saw him another year um, later, uh, 2016, French Broad up in North Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina. Um, and then I saw him again in James River for a 140-mile race. So that's, we've seen each other at these races. Um, and that's all we knew really of each other. We knew that we both liked, were very competitive. Um, and uh, I think it was New Year's Eve of 2018, he put the call out saying, I want to do the Yukon 1000. Anybody interested out there? <laughs> and, and I was, I was just then, I was signing up for the MR340 because you know it's midnight. Yeah. Um, you know that you can sign up on New Year's Eve. So I'm like, so I started talking like Mike's like, I'm the one that didn't realize how much I want to do this. Mike realized it. He just says you, you've got to do this. And I'm like. I can't do the Yukon without some, I mean, think about the logistics and everything, and the logistics is the hardest thing about this. I mean, even for the River Quest, I'm sure you've experienced that. Um, you know, just getting there to the start is, is quite phenomenal. But bottom line is, um, I did answer Paul's um, call out, and uh, we only got one time to uh, train together. I borrowed a friend's um, Oh, I can't even think of what his uh, big old heavy uh, tandem sea kayak was. Um, but anyway, we met down at Swanee and did like just a, a one-day overnight type of training paddle just to uh, see if we could not kill each other, and we survived that. So the next time I saw him was when we met up in Vancouver for the final lake going into Whitehorse. Um, 
it is does require a lot of logistics to to get there. Uh, unlike the river crest, you have the additional concern of how what kind of food do I need for ten days potentially? Mm-hmm. Because there is no resupply even at that at Dawson City at the 4:44 mark. You're not allowed to get out to resupply. You've got to do, um, you know, filter your own water. This is too much water to carry for 10 days. Um, then we started realizing you probably experienced where when the White River came into uh, the Yukon, how dramatically. Oh, it's crazy. Uh, a change of the water just seemed. That silt, I mean, it was like looking at these white clouds boiling underneath you. I mean, it was such a cool experience. I hope you had the same opportunity to see that during the daytime. I don't know when you hit that. Yeah, I I saw that. It was, it was very, it was very cool to see. It was also very strange. (laughs) Yeah, it's almost like, I felt like I was floating on the sky watching clouds develop below me. And then you start hearing the, you know, the, the silt as it goes, you know, as your hull passes through it. And then each dip of your paddle blade is And you get that until you get out at the end of the thousand. Oh, really? It, it does not get any less concentrated. Uh, it's pretty wild. So, um and your water filtration at that point is almost impossible um, from the Yukon. You've got to find um, either the, the different creeks and rivers that are, are coming into the Yukon at that point to go for your water source to filter. Or you can do like the, um, our, our crazy Aussie friends and not worry about filter filtration. They just would put in their... Um, tabs to make it, you know, so it would make them sick, and they just took the silt on in with them. Um, <laughs> yeah, different choices here, but um, but that was a phenomenal race. Um, you have already experienced one of the harder portions of the race, Lake LaBerge. You don't know if that's going to be headwinds, or you don't know if you're going to have the big waves, and you know, that's a 30-mile um lake there if i recall correctly um to get to the other end before you next down you get a good current um next then you have pretty good current until uh geez it seems like it was right around the 800 mile mark at circle city is when it starts opening up to the flats Mm. and uh yeah will can tell you and i'll also um if you want i'll i'll give you any information i had but the flats were we dropped from third place to fifth place. I mean, we did terrible through the flat. <laughs> we didn't read the waters good enough. Um, yeah, it just uh, that the flats got us, and that's a that's good hundred plus miles of of just waters. The currents are going this way and that way. It's crazy, and it's they're not well. Um, it's hard to find a good route because the ice, um, the thaws every uh, year just kind of carve different uh, routes through there that change the currents. They change what's the deep areas. They're very graded 
And um, you know, if you can read current, that's where you're going to. Uh, um, it'll be to your advantage. Um, the both Aussie teams did great when it came to that aspect of the race. Uh, bottom line, it's a phenomenal race. Um, I, I'm glad that you're going to get to experience that. Yeah, I'm excited, and I'm also. I mean, I'm also nervous just coming from a. a a point where I don't really race ever with people anymore. I, I race solo. So this will be quite an experience uh, for me to be, you know, race. And I, my partner is um, absolutely amazing. I'm lucky she even wanted to do this race with me. <laughs> so I'm a little nervous. I'm a little intimidated. I'm nervous. Uh, you know, being out there with someone racing in an ultra distance with someone else. I mean, you're, you're going to get, and you know, you get really close because I mean, they're going to see parts of you that, you know, no one, no one has seen. <laughs> so I think that that makes me really nervous. So I guess my question for you is, you know, between racing solo and then going into this thousand mile race with, with a partner, do you think that, I mean, do you think it's, do you think it helps having someone there when you're going through your worst moments or do you think it's easier to be alone and kind of get through it? Um, I'm definitely a solo person. I am absolutely a solo person. Um, and, uh, I, I think I handled things better by myself. However, one thing that I realized during the the Alabama 650 is because I, you're by yourself so much on that race. Um, just because there were just so few races that started and so many mm -hmm. dropped out. So I did realize that whenever I did come around civilization and saw people, it did perk me up. So when I started thinking about that, you know, how that helped me so much periodically during the Alabama 650, Perhaps that was something that I was getting from being with uh, with a partner during the Yukon. I just didn't realize it. Um, you know, it, I don't recall that Paul, neither Paul nor I really had any real bad times. Um, I think he had one day when he was a little bit down, and I had towards the end of the day that I was a bit down. Um, so... Perhaps without realizing it, having a partner made those swamps easier. Um, but I, I'm so much in my head most of the time when I'm by myself that, you know, my mental games kind of uh, are what I enjoy and what I, I rely upon. So kind of, kind of hard to tell. But um, you are right, being with a partner, you, um, um, they, you can't, you can't get away from them when you, you do have them. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and once again, going, you know, here, Paul and I, we, we know each other um, not deeply, not years or anything, but he's such a good guy and, and just uh, such a good person and everything. And it was never a concern that it would have, anything would be an issue during that race. And we didn't have any issues. You know, my luxury was I had my own separate tent. Uh, I'm I I'm the type of person I like to have everything kind of set. I need to know everything's neat and organized. So and I don't need much sleep. Paul, God bless him. He can come in for that six-hour stop. He can get his food, set up his little area, and 
hideous, like, and I'm still fussing around, I'm doing this, I'm cleaning up my little cockpit, I'm doing all this stuff. As long as I got my two and a half to three hours of sleep, I was good. So it was kind of nice that we did have our separate camps because we did have those different personality types. So something you might want to consider, if we both were in the same tent, I don't think that I would have felt comfortable doing all the stuff that I needed for me. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure that, uh, you know, it would have been more of a, um, Paul wouldn't have gotten all the rest that he got. Because <laughs> I would have been a bother to him. So just something that you might want to think about in that aspect. Because that was a luxury to have separate sleeping uh, capabilities. That um, makes sense. That makes sense. I would have never thought about that, but that definitely makes sense. Yeah. And there's a lot of folks, you know, I look, of course, you probably look at the YouTubes also of, of folks that have done this in the past. And, I, you know, you see how... Most people are in there, you know, they, they share a tent. I saw that uh, Will and Pat did, uh, which that was really cool during the races. We kept on running into Will and Pat mm -hmm. the first few days of the race. Um, but, uh, but they were able to do that. It seemed like not having any issues. So just that's something you do probably want to talk to your partner about and just see how well you guys do mesh with those aspects. Yeah, definitely. I think we, we have a lot to research and a lot to talk about getting into that race. Um, so talking about Alabama 650. So this year there was, I, I was watching it because I actually was planning on doing the Alabama 650. And then I just logistically, I just couldn't figure it out. But I, I noticed that there was, there was only 12 entries because this was the first year. Um, mm -hmm. You were the only female solo that entered, I believe. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And looks like only what? What four people ended up finishing? Yeah. Well, it's when when we say twelve entries or twelve votes, I think there were something like seventeen people. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. um, there, and we finished up with three boats, four people. So solo male, solo female, and. Uh, one one team, tandem team, um, did finish it. Um, and I think uh, for most of us, um, we all were looking at this race, it, you know, brand new, not knowing the waterways or anything. We're all thinking, okay, we've got the Coosa River for the first section, and we got the Alabama River. For most of the second section, then you have, you know, 50, 60 miles of uh, the Delta and the Mobile Bay, which who knows what the, you know, winds and currents will be in that. But at least you think, okay, I've got a good, you know, about 600 miles of, of river currents and everything. Um, that's not the case. All of the, there's, there's nine dams that you go through, and so the river current, there really isn't a current. Um, you have just a series of lakes and rivers that are dam controlled, and if you happen to get to the, the downside of a dam when they're doing a release, then you'll get a current for a little bit. Um, but it, within a half hour, you're going crap back to flat water again. <laughs> you know? So it really, as far as um, 
uh, being mentally prepared, that threw most of us uh, off uh, because we were mentally prepared for a little bit faster race. Uh, I finished in seven, as you said, seven days, 15 hours or whatever. I was really hoping to be finished somewhere on the fifth day. You know? um, but just like anything, you do your plan and preparation for you know, much longer than you really expect it to uh, happen. And usually, you, you go faster than what you expect. Uh, definitely not the case with this race. Um, at least next year going into it, I'll be much more mentally prepared for uh, the conditions that uh, that we'll be paddling through. Okay, so you are going to do it next year. Yeah, yeah, it's so funny because being the first race, there was a lot of uh, interest, and so we got interviewed quite a bit. And, um, one of the young uh, interviewers, reporter um, guys, very, very, very good uh, uh, interviewer, he met me you know, somewhere along the way on the water. He canoed out somewhere and had his, his camera and everything. And so he, as I come in up, he's starting to keep up and he's asking me questions. And one of the questions he asked, so what are your thoughts about doing this, this next year? I was like, oh my gosh, Hunter, this is one question you never ever ask a racer in the middle of a race. <laughs> because you're always going to get the, oh heck no, if not more harsh, there's no way I consider doing this. I just want to finish this one. But you know, so quickly, within days, uh, if not just hours after finishing, you're already thinking about uh, all the things you could do better next year. So uh, yeah, it's a pretty quick turn, quick turnaround on the way you think about that. So yep, I'm thinking about it. I'm so this it. race. Compared to the MR340, because MR340, there are no portages, no dams. Uh, there's just wing dikes that you can get around. Uh, Yukon, from what I from what I know, there's no portages there either. I know for no. the Yukon River Quest, there isn't. So. No, no there, there's no portages, portages there. Um, so it's also straight through. And um, as we were talking about earlier, you know, keeping your... your Seat in the bucket, um, and the more you do that, the better your outcome's going to be. So, um, so to be honest, so having these portages is kind of refreshing because you get to get out, walk around, stretch, mm. and each, um, there's, like I said, nine dams that you portage around. The first dam, they don't have a mandatory wait time, but the other eight there, there are. The first dam, you just get out and you try to get to the foot in place as quickly as possible. The others are either 30 to 45 minutes, which usually you've got more than enough time if you've got a ground crew to help you get to the put in portion and still have time to, um, you know, kind of refresh, resupply your food and drink, stretch, all that kind of great stuff. Um, and then you're waiting, you know, kind of sitting in your boat saying, waiting for them to say, okay, go. Um, so it's, it's actually kind of nice because you do get that, that break and that leg stretch and everything. Um, this is a race, though, more so than any race that I've done, which is not that, you know, I haven't done, you know, anything internationally. Uh, but, you know, this race... Your ground crew can can 
does make a huge difference. Um, because some of these portages are so long, you know, you're, you're not required to have a ground crew if you're in a tandem team. I think what they're saying this year is that you're highly encouraged or that you must have at least one person as a ground crew as a solo. And um, I think that's what they had as a requirement for last year also, this past year. Um, and I'm pretty sure they're still making a mandatory, they should, for the solo. Uh, because, like, there's one, many of them are over a mile. Oh, wow. And if you're carrying, yeah, and so if you're carrying and you, all your stuff because you don't have a ground crew resupplying you, that means you're carrying a lot of food and everything. Um, and I would assume at that point you're having to do water filtration because not all these places have water resupplies so mm. it's a lot to take in consideration so your crew is absolutely critical if you really wish to be competitive um if you wish to make the 10 day you see i think you still need a crew um but they don't have to, you don't have to be you know as high speed but uh, it, it is a huge consideration for this race um they're limiting it to only 20 boats for this next um, 2020. Um, I'm hoping that it's going to be a very competitive group, so which will mean ground crew is going to be absolutely critical. Mm. Now, ground crew, so at each of these portaging points, they're able to resupply you with whatever you want. They can treat you like a king or a queen. Oh, you don't funny. have to do it. They can help you get out of your boat and make sure your legs are stable. And if they want, they can carry you to your car. <laughs> you know, they carry the boat. They do. You can. I mean, my guys are great. Mike and, and Joe, fantastic. I hardly did anything, but they just I just got pointed in the right direction, and um, you know. So yes, you can use. Um, your ground crew can can transport your boat from takeout to put in. They can do all the resupply. You know, you can if there is a um, a road that or a driving area uh, that can connect the two, then you can use your car to to get from A to B. Um, you know, once again, you know, still you have those mandatory. Uh, hold times, whether it's 30 or 45 minutes, but if you get to your put-in place and you've got, you know, 20 minutes to go, well, that's all your time to do your stretching and your eating and rehydrating and, you know, all that great stuff. Um, so the more your crew can do for you, the more you can do for yourself to get ready for the next stretch. Um, it, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, when you start thinking about it, it makes the planning for the race more complicated, much more complicated, I think, than even the Yukon, um, definitely more complicated than the MR340 because, you know, once for the Yukon, once you've got all of your food and everything figured out, you can just get in your boat and go. <laughs> yeah. And between, between 11 o'clock and midnight, you're looking for a place to stop. You start your roll timer, okay, you know, six hours, then you're back in the water, you go, 
until between 11 and midnight, you're looking for a place to stay. I mean, so, you know, once you get going on the Yukon, you know, I think the, the Yukon hardest thing was just all the planning and prep so that you had what you needed once you got on the water. Mm-hmm. For the MR340, it's not even that complicated. You just make sure your ground crew has everything you need, and then you just kind of stop with every once in a while, and they take care of things. But this one, though, is such a coordinated, synchronized dance between you and your crew. And for them to get from from the different dams or whatever, many times it was really hard for them to get there before I would get there. And I wouldn't say many times, but um, especially being so new and we're trying to figure out how to get to all these places. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there were times because they, they still had to go and get resupplied, whether it was with ice or with food for me or for them. They also had to figure out where they could sleep in the midst of all of this. So it is, you know, I'm kind of glad that, well, I am glad that the race committee is still restricting it to only 20 votes because uh, they are also growing in how they're going to manage this race. There was a point, Mike was saying, that it was almost a 100-mile stretch between the last boat that was still in the water, the last paddler that was still in the water, and the first boat uh, paddler that was in the water. And that really stretched race management. And so they're trying to figure out how best to handle all this as they take in more racers. I, I don't think that they were very sad that so many dropped out um, because it was kind of like, you know, that we were the wind dummies. We were the ones to, to <laughs> kind of to see how it would all work out. And for the first race of such a long distance, you know, it was phenomenal how well they did have it all together, race management did. Mm-hmm. Kind of so more than seeing how it ends here. Yeah, I would, I would love to do it next year, but I, I don't think... Uh right after the Yukon 1000, it's a possibility. <laughs> so maybe we'll look at 2021. I hope so. Very wonderful to see you there. Maybe by 2021, I'll be, um, I'll be ground crew at that point. Oh, <laughs> so between the three races, I mean, which one do you think is, was the most difficult for you? Um, I do think that the, this last one was. Um, and when I say that, the race itself was. Um, as far as the planning and prep, uh, probably comparable but in different ways difficulty with the Yukon 1000. Um, the MR340, it's kind of like what we were talking about at the start. It's a great starter race for individuals who want to get you know further than the 100 or 150 miles um, because it is such a well-developed, well-put-together race. It is kind of, you know, it is easier to, to plug yourself in if you have a ground crew into it. Um, so, but as far as the, um, the execution of the race itself, um, I would say this last one, the 650, was is the hardest. Okay. And then, you know, between the three, what is kind of the difference in the training that you did? Because there's such, I mean, 
you've got 340 miles, 650 miles, and you've got a thousand miles. I mean, are you, are you training differently for these races or did you kind of do the same? It, it, it is kind of similar. Um, you know, I'm kind of a, you know, I had this whole mantra in my head as I'm paddling. Here goes Sal. She's a one-speed gal. You know, I'm just like, <laughs> um, you know, because once you do start going distance, you, know, you, you, you it, your training is all about making sure your technique is efficient and um, and as little stress to your joints as possible. And that's one thing that as older folks are learning is, is you know, your efficient uh, stroke is what's going to save your shoulders. Your efficient stroke is what's going to save your core. And you know, I've learned, so my training is really all about making sure, you know, I am doing the proper leg drive, um, you know, engaging the core. And, you know, I've heard many people say, well, you can't, you know, leg drive is not that important for these longer races. Well, I totally, totally disagree. Um, you know, it's, I don't, my arms don't, you know, now that I'm learning, I used to blow out my forearms because I used to power with my arms. Um, now I, I've got a good closed shoulder, you know, I've got a good frame, which Mike is just one, he just harps on me about this, and he's done a great job of, of getting me into a much better form, but you know, I hold my frame, and it's the core driven from you know my heel on that that powers me. Um, you know, sometimes I know I was looking at some of the videos of the 650, you know, day five or six. You know, I'm looking at how low my arms are. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's pathetic. And I'm starting to, you know, but you start realizing that that's kind of where you go to. So. Yeah, then we start thinking about well, maybe we need to change the angle. You have different angle um, blades for you know later on in the race because that's just kind of how you go. But anyway, so the training itself is all about understanding your technique and then um, making sure that your skin is is prepared. Now you've got to have your nice calluses or whatever on your hands, and you've got to you know, understand how to, to keep your skin's integrity intact. Um, because that's where, that's what's going, you know, things like that, when you start having a breakdown of the skin, it's where you start having issues that can take you out of a race. Mm -hmm. So the, the training, you know, it's more like I stay on the water, I make sure that, you know, I've got the paddle in my hand at least five days out of the week, at least an hour at a time, just to keep my good calluses in my hands. Um, I, I like to focus on my, I don't do a lot of long distance, I'll do a 20 or 30 miler or whatever, you know, once a week, but it, I mean, it's really not that, I, I'm having fun doing sprints that I, when I lock in a good technique and then doing a sprint, I think that starts to, I think it's been building what my, my base level one gal sal speed is, <laughs> uh, so but so when, you know, whether it was the 1,000, which kind of hard to say, you know, kind of hard to compare. For the M1340 and for the 650, it's basically the same. For the 1,000, I was, you know, I'm a surf ski gal. So for the 1,000, now I'm doing a sea kayak. And, you know, 
much much wider. I'm with a, a partner that we've got to sync in our cadences. That's, that was the other thing. He's got a very high tempo cadence. I had I have a higher one now, but I at that time had a much slower cadence. You know, so it's kind of hard. You know, training for that was really more about um, just trying to figure out um, how how to match up, change up the speeds and everything. Trying to you know, make sure that um, I still could do that core drive. You know, you're, now you're I'm learning that C word facade with you've got the pegs laid out. I'm used to having a crossboard. So one thing that uh, I did prior to uh, the race actually starting up there in uh, White Horses. You know, I found Paul was going to be the one doing the rudder controls, so I was able to get a, put a board across the two different pegs so that I had now the board's drive fun. So I was, still was able to do leg drive even for the 1000 um, that made me feel more comfortable about using my core. Mm -hmm. um, so those are just the different things that, you know, it's more the boat itself than the actual distance of the race that um, kind of changed up my thoughts about how to conduct the race. Mm -hmm. Have and you have have you ever not finished an ultra? Um, there were two races that I started that I didn't complete. One was the 2015 Everglades Challenge, and that was because it was canceled or um, cut short by the Coast Guard. So we all had to pull out at the 60 or 65 mile mark, whatever that first checkpoint was. Um, so, uh, and then the other one was the, the Low Country River Rat Race. Um, that was in 2017. Um, it was supposed to be, I recall, I don't know, 190, couple hundred miles. Anyway, um, it, it, the upper uh, Edisto River, uh, you go through a lot of, um, I guess, a cypress swamp area, and there have been storms. Uh, and so what they didn't realize that is that there were so many drop trees through the course. It's a, a nice little river, it had a current. And uh, but then all of a sudden you're you've got these these trees all the way so you're trying to figure out how to get your your boat up and over these trees. Some trees I was able to go under, um, but it's such a boggy thing you couldn't. You know you're in an 18 foot boat that you couldn't weave it through the the cypress trees that were standing. Bottom line is I made it 59 miles. The rest of the group, there's a small group to begin with, only made it like 22 miles. But it took me to do those 59 miles. It was like 19 hours and something. Oh. It was brutal, brutal. <laughs> but the good thing was, is I was trying out, I was testing out a um, new type of nutrition. I was testing out a new way, a system of providing me that nutrition. I was testing out a few different things about placements of uh, my gear on my boat, and um, I had sufficient time and stress to determine what I needed to change or what worked and everything. So um, 
Yeah, it was a successful race in that, but yeah, so I, um, none of us made that race. So those are the only two that I started, but I haven't completed. Yeah, those are good experiences, though. So, so going back to uh, Sarah Lavender Smith, you know, talking about the, I guess, the top non-physical attributes for for ultras, one of them being experience. I mean, that I can see already definitely comes you know not only with age but also with how many races you've done so it seems like you you have a lot of experience and it's it's allowed you to to overcome a lot of things that first timers probably would know nothing about at all <laughs> correct correct um and in so many ways you know i've seen first timers or folks that are relatively new have the issues with a hand tear or, um, you know, with, if you're in salt water, you um, run the risk of getting really severe abrasions uh, on your torso or whatever just from, you know, um, you, know you get the, the water evaporating, leaving the salt crystals, and every, you know, you're that constant rotation of the torso, then you start just getting just wicked wounds. Um, so we see that during like the Everglades challenge. Um, and so you learn, I've learned what works for me. And I, I never have issues with that. Uh, I did have um, this Alabama 650. I had an issue with um, uh, getting a nice blister on my, my bum. Oh, those are um, the worst. <laughs> uh, you know, I've never had that before. And what I found, what we were realizing is that you know, I had a pair of uh, paddling shorts that had been my go-to paddling shorts. Well, they're getting too loose and everything. And so instead of having that nice um, compression and fit uh, against the skin, um, it was a nice loose thing that actually became um, um, my the problem that rubbed me, uh, rubbed a very bad blister on the very first day of the race. Um, you know, so had that have been uh, the first time I'd ever done something and I had a daunting, you know, now I'm more experiencing that, you know, there is no current. This is going to take a lot longer than I thought. I'm going to be doing a good week. I've got this huge blister that um, the potential for it getting infected is pretty high. You know, um, you know, that's something that could easily take you out mentally, if not physically. Um, but the experience of knowing, you know, we've treated stuff, I know, you know, something like that, you've got to, to address it rapidly, um, whether it's with iodine or something like that that'll toughen up the skin real quick. Um, we've got some, some pretty wicked spray that's done like hell, but it basically, you know, sealed the wound mm -hmm. and you drive on. But, you know, if you don't know how to address those things and you don't know... Uh, if you haven't had the experience of doing that and knowing, it gets better, you know, that, um, you know, it, it can be daunting and can take you out. So my um, uh, experience in those type of things do make a huge difference, I think. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely experienced the, uh, the butt rash thing. I know MR, <laughs> MR340 for me, I mean... If, if you could have seen the pictures, it is just, it was horrible. I mean, I, I think that was probably the biggest thing for me. I did not want to get back in the boat because 
my behind was so raw. I mean, we're talking the whole entire thing. It just wasn't one blister. It was everywhere. And I, yeah. And I learned, um, for me, I mean, I, I was blessed with a very high pain tolerance. I don't know if I was born with it or going through childbirth, you know, (laughs) put me there, but, um, luckily I was able to get through it, but, you know, going into the Yukon 1000 or Yukon river quest, um, wasn't nearly as bad because I took the precautions. It's just those things, like you mentioned, you know, you don't, it's, it's the stuff that you wouldn't think you had have to prepare for that ends up, uh, that ends up, you know, getting you. And it's just like, uh, you know, the, the MR340 this year, I know that, um, three people entered the race, right? Joe Mann, he was in his, his solo. Yeah, he was in his, um, Riverhawk, I believe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think it was uh, Mark Mark Walters. Uh, Matt. Matt. Matt, Matt, yeah. Matt Walters. Matt mm-hmm. Walters. So he, him and Joe actually ended up dropping out of the race. And it was, it was interesting. I was reading on social media something that Joe mentioned. You know, he said, bottom line, he just, it was poor preparation on his part. I know he had to be pulled out of the race. I haven't had a chance to talk with him yet, but because his boat was completely iced over (laughs) (laughs) and I know that, uh, the, the two man, they had a heater in their canoe, which I thought was very clever. (laughs) Not that a heater would have fit in the, in the river Hawk, but, um, yeah, it is exactly. just those things. There's those things that you you don't think you have to prepare for. Like, you know, all these guys are in top shape. They've all done that race before, but they've never done it, you know, in the middle of November. So it's those, those little things that you can't really prepare yourself, prepare yourself for. Um, I know that Matt, he, I was also reading his, you know, recap of the race and, you know, something he probably didn't expect. He had to pull out because he he, I don't know, he yeah, got some blind. sort of vision. Yeah. Snow blind. <laughs> I mean, yeah. in the middle of November, who would have thought, you know, that that would have been something that would have pulled you out. I mean, Absolutely. I'm sure. For, yeah. yeah so, it was really sad, sad to see because I mean, in his boat, I'm just in love with his little contraption there. Isn't that um, neat? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's phenomenal. I mean, what a phenomenal thing to put together that he had done. Um, you know, Mike's laughing at me. He goes, you you want one of those, don't you? I'm like, no, no, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and for those of yeah. you listening that don't, you know, know what he was on, it was it was this sort of kind of pontoon-looking thing, a pedal drive, and he somehow fashioned every time he pedaled a, a paddle, like a regular paddle, single blade would hit the water. I mean, it just, at nighttime, it looked... Yeah quite funny <laughs> well he, he looked like from um you know the dr seuss books you know the contraptions that yeah. they would have uh, but, uh, yeah it was pretty phenomenal um i think that word keeps on popping up <laughs> and you know and it's funny uh, the word pops up a lot when i think about you know these races the people that do the races the the, the boats that you see especially the modifications of boats um, uh, and it's kind of nice that such experiences that we get to have by doing this, you know, um, are so phenomenal. Um, 
it makes, especially as a 60-year-old gal, make life quite interesting. And you know, I'm, I'm so ready to do the next one as soon as I recover from the, you know, the latest one. Um, you know, it does keep life um, from getting boring, that's for sure. So to kind of to kind of end this conversation, I guess uh, my my curiosity is, you know, I experience hallucinating a lot. Um, if I don't get sleep, I'm not a good I'm not a good candidate for the no sleeping, <laughs> which I'm. Oh. Yeah, it's I had some pretty heavy experiences in the MR340. Uh, that's going into that second night. Uh, I think the whole entire race I had two hours of sleep, which for me was not nearly enough. <laughs> so I guess just, just to kind of keep it light. I mean, what is from what you remember, like maybe from, from each race or maybe just from one of them, like, what is the, what is the craziest thing that you experience? you know, me mental, mentally, whether it be hmm. hallucinating or anything. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, you know, it, it, but before I go into that, just to, you made me think about something when you were um, talking about the not sleeping and everything. That's one of the aspects that also made the Alabama 650 harder than any of the other races, is that there wasn't a mandatory downtime like UConn 1000. Mm -hmm. You know, you always have that six hour window where you are going to get some level of sleep. Yeah, and you have to have some level of sleep for 650 miles. For 340 miles, you don't, not on a moving river like the MR340. So it, that doesn't become a um, hard thing to work in or to figure out for the MR340. For the Alabama 650, especially because the water doesn't move and it is, you know, so such a long distance, again, you're going to have to figure out how to sleep, and the fact that they don't make it mandatory downtimes, now you've got to figure out how can I get enough sleep while not losing out to, you know, whoever I'm competing against who might not sleep as much, mm -hmm. but if I don't sleep as much, then it's going to hurt me down the road, which actually I, I went too long at the start without sleep, and I never could quite get fully back up to speed uh, with my, my sleep on you know, the second half of my race. So I, I really, that's one thing I'm going to change dramatically for the next time I do it. I've got to start making myself get some sleep a little bit earlier. So that makes, that's another element that makes that particular race much harder than any of the others that, that I've done. Okay, so saying all that, you, know, you just made me think about that. When you <laughs> no, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, I, the, probably the best hallucination that I had was earlier on. I don't seem to do it that much uh, now, um, but during like water tribe events where the Everglades Challenge, when Mike and I, the first time we're out in the 10,000 islands area, oh my gosh. You're doing a, I don't know, this was an overnight, so 24, 36 hours into it. Um, and you're, you're in the middle, you've gotten away from all the lights of civilization. I mean, there's nothing out there. And just the stars are gorgeous and it's crisp. Uh, even though you're the, you, you got to the more southern areas, it was warm, but the evening time was getting crisp. And, and then all of a sudden, 
we see this thing that, like, holy crap, that looks like, you know, the golden arches, you know, like one of the arches of McDonald's. And we're, we're both trying to figure it out and everything. And um, it ended up being the, the sliver of the moon coming up. It was just this arms thing, but we could not figure it out. I mean, we were, we were it was just so odd to us. And um, yeah, I remember that. I couldn't, because all you saw was a sea of blackness and the sky of the stars and then this golden arch out there in the middle of nowhere. Anyway, uh, so that was a cool little phenomenon. Um, the other thing that I see is, and maybe it helps my competitive nature, I always see racers ahead of me. Me too, me too. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and, and so much so that even in the daytime, I'm going, I know that's not a racer. I know that's just the way the tree is and the way I'm going. And, and I'm like, no, I see him. I see him turning his head. I see it. <laughs> so, and I'm just bombing. I'm, I'm just cranking to catch up with that one. And then it's not. And then I'm like, oh, but I do see another one there. I mean, it's so, and I, even though I know it's not the case, then I go, now this time it really is real. So it's funny how your mind plays those tricks on you. It's just crazy. But with the Alamo 650, the, the, the two things that my mind was kind of messing with me was I had a hard time because I did mess up my sleep pattern. So I'm having a real hard time in the dark. And so I would, I'm in my surf ski and I'm in a V8 Pro, Epic V8 Pro. And it was a good, steady boat. But when at night time, when you're starting to fall asleep, I realized that often I was paddling and I was basically asleep. And so sometimes my paddle was catching the water, sometimes I was air paddling. And I was realizing pretty soon I was going to be pulling in. So that was a weird sensation. And then the other sensation was one morning, um, as the sun started to come up, I'm seeing there's the puppy clouds up here and the sun's just coming over the horizon and I'm seeing, I mean, there is no current so the river is flat near. So now I'm seeing a perfect reflection and I can't really figure out where I am in the midst of all of this. <laughs> am I in the water? Am I in the air? I mean, and that was, it lasted a good half hour of this weird transition and uh, that was, that was pretty neat. A little bit scary but neat. But, um, yeah, I kind of like that. And it was later on that morning that um, on the on the 650, you've got a lot of fish rolling. There's a lot of uh, healthy um, marine life around there. And, um, and they have these alligator gars that that jump and roll, which can scare the heck out of you, you know, wake you up and everything. And, um, and it just happened when, this is a little bit after 500 mile mark, when I've been holding the lead at that point, and the, the guy who had been catching up with me and did pass me, we, we paddled together for probably a good hour, just talking and catching mm -hmm. up and everything. And it was while we were talking and everything that I had what I thought uh, uh, was a, a large um, gar rolling. <clears throat> He's like, no, that was... That was an alligator that rolled right at my Oh bow. my gosh. Yeah. And so it hit it rolled right at my bow 
And you know, I had to do the quick brace and everything. And, and Bobby was so funny. He's like, now, I would have gone in there and saved you. I would have. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that, that particular morning was an interesting day, you know, morning. But anyway, so those are kind of my, I can't really think of any, you know. Oh, well, yeah, the manatee. Um, but that's on the hallucination. That was real, too. But we didn't know what the heck was going on. Once again, the 10,000 island area. Uh, we weren't used to paddling around the manatees, and they sleep in the, the grasses of the lower, you know, shallower waters. And I cut around, I was a little bit ahead of Mike, and I was cutting around one of the little islands, and um, I obviously woke it up. And <laughs> what, what they do when they are frightened is they start spinning, and they try to get out to deeper water. And unfortunately, I was between it and deeper water. All we realized, what we saw is this big wall of water. And it was like an explosion. This wall of water was coming towards me. And I'm going, um, what the heck? Now, this is a little bit after seeing you know, the McDonald's you know, arches <laughs> in the sky. And I want to see this wall of water coming at me. I'm going, what is this? And, uh, and fortunately, Right when it came up to me, it was deep enough to go underneath me, so he didn't flip me or raise me up, which a lot of our uh, fellow um, um, paddlers had to deal with. But Mike said he lost, lost total view of me because of that wall of water. It was just such a big thing, so that was pretty wild, you know. Anyway, so a lot of great things to experience, and um, you know, I don't think I've really had a single race where I haven't had a time where my heart has raced and you know either the beauty of something or the, the thrill of something frightening or whatever but it's also wonderful um, uh, it's, it's, it's a neat experience each time yeah I'm loving it I'm, I'm loving the journey and I hope uh, I hope when I'm 60 I'm still I'm still doing this <laughs> I hope you are too. I'll be your grand crew. <laughs> hey, I'll take you up on that. <laughs> oh, Lord, she's got it on recording now. <laughs> well, it's been great talking to you, and I really appreciate you sharing all your experiences. I mean, I, I know I first heard about you. Uh, Will, you know, mention you as just someone, again, phenomenal racer and um just nice to have a conversation, you know, with someone who's had so much experience and and seems to enjoy the same aspects of it that that I do, and I'm sure everyone else shares in this ultra distance crazy community. <laughs> and um, it's always a joy to talk to somebody who loves doing this too, and that's that's one thing that Mike and I are all about is you know there's so many different. Um, uh, levels of paddling, and we love them all. Um, you know, whether you're just out for the recreational joy of it, or if you want to get into these, you know, the sprint races or the longer races, uh, you know, we're all about just just trying to share whatever we know in our limited years of doing this. Um, you know, to help others kind of join our group because just more people to enjoy having conversations with and. Yeah, uh, make you know more uh, experiences with. Um, oh, great! Hopefully, so I get to see you at one of these races. 
I hope so too. I'm sure we will along the way. And it, even if we don't, um, absolutely keep the lines of communication open. If there's any questions about, you know, the, the Yukon 1000 as you guys prepare for it, or if you have any questions about when you are going to be doing the Alabama 650 or anything, you, you know, absolutely. Um, I'd like to keep on sharing whatever we have to share here. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you again. All right. Well, Tim Will and the, the gang were that way a little for me, and uh, <laughs> I hope to see all of you on the water someday.